Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. It has one proton and one electron. But I bet you didn't know that hydrogen comes in different colors. Now, from my perspective, the only hydrogen to consider is green hydrogen. And Janice Lynn is our guest on this week's show. She will explain why green hydrogen is better than regular hydrogen and way better than brown hydrogen. Now, Janice is the CEO of Stratagen Consulting. I've known Janice for almost 20 years as we've been working on and off with solar and storage policy in California and the U.S. And she's been the driving force behind the California Energy Storage Alliance, the Energy Storage North America Conference, Vehicle to Grid Integration Council, and the Green Hydrogen Coalition. So welcome to the show, Janice. Thanks, Barry. Great to be here. All right. Great to be here virtually, as we all are, coming on the one-year anniversary of COVID. All right. So just a little bit of background. Tell us about your work with energy storage over the past few years. Happy to do that. And it's been so fun knowing you and working with you all these years. So I started my career in clean energy working for a little rooftop solar company called Powerlight. And... They were acquired by SunPower, and right around that transaction, I started Stratagen, which is my services firm. And Stratagen, so you know, is a mission-driven professional services firm, and our mission is to decarbonize energy systems as fast as possible. And early on, we have a pretty big footprint now. We work throughout the U.S. We have a subsidiary in Australia. And in the early days, we were mostly consulting in solar and related renewable energy spaces with some storage clients. And this was really early. This was in 2005, back when, you know, if you mentioned storage to somebody, they would probably say, how many megabytes? (laughs) How many (laughs) kilowatt hours? And, you know, then it was clear that storage would be a game changer for our power sector if you're mission-oriented and you believe in the economic potential and the, you know, climate change fighting potential of renewable electricity. And, you know, at that time, storage was not even part of any planning process officially. It was, you know, maybe considered in utility R&D pilots. And it was, you know, with that sort of industry structure as a backdrop that we started the California Energy Storage Alliance. At the time, CISA was the world's first organized advocacy group to represent energy storage in the power sector. And, you know, when we started it, we just had no idea (laughs) the journey that we would be on. Today, as CISA is a, it started as a multi-client study. Now it's its own 501c6 nonprofit with more than 100 members. It's considered a model trade association in California. And it's been a really amazing journey to be part of that transformation of, you know, really evolving our power sector, our planning processes, how we think about the toolkit to now include storage as part of the mainstream toolkit in evolving and planning an affordable and reliable power sector. And what's really cool is the work in California, I think, has been quite inspirational for a lot of state governments and countries around the world. So, Storage is now a pretty big focus area by the IFC, the World Bank, 
and enabling lots, lots more renewables everywhere. Well, it's interesting just kind of running the clock back those few years back to 2004, 2005. It's funny because I used to install lead acid battery backup systems and battery storage systems. And I got out of the storage business in around 2005 because the lead acid batteries were just kind of, it was too much of a science project. And now, I mean, over the past four or five years, we've been gradually accelerating our installations of the lithium ion batteries. And over half of our customers are putting in batteries and that attach rate's just going to keep going up. So you're really prescient as usual. And, you know, we're all in a great place. So let's talk a little bit about hydrogen in general, you know, for the people who aren't chemistry and physics nerds. How do we make hydrogen now? Okay, so I love talking about hydrogen. Hydrogen, and this was news to me because, you know, remember my background was in solar for years and years and years. And when I started researching and learning about hydrogen, it was a real eye-opener. And learning number one, (laughs) which is how we make hydrogen, we actually make lots of hydrogen to the tune of like 100 million metric tons per year globally. Virtually all of it is made from fossil fuels. And, you know, when you think about the scale of that, if we treated the production of hydrogen as if it were a country, it would be the sixth largest producer of greenhouse gases today because its feedstock is fossil fuels, even larger than Germany. So give you perspective. Hydrogen is a mature industrial commodity made all over the world. I think the U.S. has maybe a one-seventh global market share, and it produces a lot of GHGs. All right. What do we do with all that hydrogen? I mean, I, I don't see like hydrogen tanks around. I have no appliances or equipment that uses hydrogen. What are the main uses? You know, you've probably seen a hydrogen tank. You just didn't know it. And, you know, in the U.S., most hydrogen is made from reformation of natural gas. You can think of it as like cracking Cracking the gas to split off the hydrogen molecules, it requires high heat. And the number one use of hydrogen today, and they call it gray hydrogen because it's made from natural gas. You want to talk about the colors. Brown hydrogen is made from oil or coal. Most of our hydrogen is gray hydrogen. And the number one use is in oil refineries. It's a key ingredient when you're refining oil. The number two use is in making ammonia. And ammonia is, I would say, 80% of that ammonia use is then used in making fertilizer. So hydrogen goes into transportation applications, agriculture, and there's a number of other chemical and industrial processes, but that's the use today. And what's really interesting about hydrogen that got me super excited is not only is there a trajectory to make hydrogen from non-fossil fuel feedstock sources, but to do so in a way that's cheaper than gray hydrogen. Probably within five years, it'll be, I'll say, cost competitive with gray hydrogen with carbon sequestration. So now you have a zero carbon fossil fuel source as compared to a non-fossil fuel feedstock made from renewable sources, also zero carbon, and they're going to be on parity. In the long term, green hydrogen is going to be the economically superior pathway, which is very, very exciting. And what that does is it opens the door to using this decarbonized mighty molecule in other applications. It can be used as a transportation fuel. We've all heard of the Toyota Mirai. It can also be used as a transportation fuel for medium and heavy-duty trucks. 
potentially as an aviation fuel. If it's a fuel cell plane, it can be synthesized into a liquid aviation fuel, a shipping fuel. So we can use green hydrogen to decarbonize some of these really tough, hard to abate sectors. So just kind of getting still into the technical things. So the transportation applications, very, very cool. I like that. How do we distribute the hydrogen? I mean, so it's made in a central plant, and then how does it get into these applications? If it's going to, you know, for example, feedstock or making ammonia, that's a central factory. But as we start to use it in more distributed applications, how do people get the hydrogen? Okay, yeah. So thank you for getting me back on track. Let's, let's break up this conversation into two parts. So there are multiple pathways to make the hydrogen, the multiple footprints, and then there's multiple ways to use the hydrogen. So oil refining, making ammonia, transportation fuel, I'd put that on the use or the application side. So let's come back to the production pathways. So the one that most people have probably heard about is using electricity via electrolysis to split water. So your feedstock is water and you use electricity to split it into hydrogen and oxygen. If that electricity is zero carbon or renewable, now you have a renewable hydrogen product. Clearly, if you use electricity made from coal, the resulting hydrogen won't be so clean. Other pathways of making hydrogen from non-fossil feedstocks include reformation of biogas. So it's a very similar process to reforming natural gas. It's just that instead of using natural gas, you're using biogas. It's also possible, it's called thermochemical conversion of solid matter, so organic waste. You could even thermochemically convert plastic into hydrogen. And I'm not a technical person or a chemical engineer. How I think about it is you take some organic matter or hydrogen-rich, hydrogen in just about everything, and under a closed-loop, very high-temperature process, you gasify it. What comes out is a syngas. That syngas can be further processed to break out the hydrogen. And depending on what your feedstock is, there'll be more or less hydrogen in that syngas. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And we can dive into the chemistry and the physics. I got a lot of questions there, but just kind of keeping it more of a high level from an economic perspective. So... It seems to me that fossil fuel companies have been the big supporters of hydrogen because it uses a lot of natural gas, and we've got an abundance of natural gas. How is this good for climate change at all, or should we just be finding alternative sources for the hydrogen, and that would clearly be better for climate change? A big question for me is, is it the right thing for the fossil fuel companies to be pushing this fuel if ultimately it's going to convert to something that's clean and renewable? Yeah, so... It is true that fossil fuel companies are now getting on board with the energy transition. This is a very, very good thing. And they are supporters of hydrogen because, yes, they have plants and equipment that can make hydrogen, and they see a pathway to decarbonizing that hydrogen. It's called blue hydrogen. So if you produce hydrogen from fossil fuel pathways and sequester the carbon, which can be done, you have a, you know, a much cleaner product, right? I won't say zero carbon because you're still going to have some leakage <laughs> in the pipeline and other places. That's a good thing. And, you know, we're the Green Hydrogen Coalition, but when you look at the urgency of the task before us, we need to find ways, all of the above, to decarbonize <laughs> our energy uses. 
And the reality is that, you know, today we use a lot of natural gas. We make a lot of hydrogen from natural gas. If there's a way quickly we can sequester that carbon, that's going to be a good thing for the planet. Good. That makes sense. I was, you know, kind of going into this conversation, I've already added two colors to my repertoire, but, you know, talking about green and brown hydrogen, but the blue hydrogen makes a lot of sense. And it does make a lot of sense for us to start getting more hydrogen out into the economy to use as feedstocks for something that the alternative would be natural gas, which is going to be really hard to sequester that CO2. But can we use the existing pipelines? Do we need new pipelines? Do we need tanker yeah, trucks I'm glad holding you raised it? that Because at the end of the day, the we need pipelines. We need storage facilities for the hydrogen. Now, we have some of that. Usually, typically, those that infrastructure, you see it when you drive by an oil refinery. <laughs> the big round ball is probably storing hydrogen. Oh. There are pipelines at connecting oil refiners. In fact, in the U.S., we have 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipelines, 100% hydrogen pipelines. So that infrastructure can be shared. It's our view at the Green Hydrogen Coalition that in the long term, the green hydrogen is going to be cheaper. So this blue hydrogen strategy is a transition strategy that may help us transition the existing infrastructure, utilize existing plan and equipment, but long-term, economically, it's going to be cheaper to use green hydrogen. Right. And okay. we can achieve much faster deep decarbonization by the proliferation of green hydrogen at low cost and at scale. All right. I'm kind of getting a part of the program here. So as Ernie Muniz said, natural gas is a bridge to renewables. So I see gray hydrogen being a bridge to blue hydrogen, which is going to be a good bridge to green hydrogen. So once we have the infrastructure in place, which is going to be very expensive, I clearly see how green hydrogen is ultimately going to be cheaper because the fuel is going to be renewables, and those prices keep coming down and down and down. So let's talk about... Um, May I just add one thing, Barry? Yeah, sure. I don't see green hydrogen success as predicated on blue hydrogen success, and, and that's maybe what could be implied when we say it's a bridge. I think of it as more parallel swim lanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, let's decarbonize gray hydrogen, but at the same time, let's do everything we can to scale up green hydrogen. And that means we need to focus on building up new infrastructure for its very low cost delivery to high demand centers. Okay, makes total sense. So what does this hydrogen economy mean for climate change? How is it gonna change the paradigm and really get us to that lower temperature on the earth faster than the current path that we're on? Okay, so earlier, we talked about green hydrogen displacing gray. And remember, the making of gray hydrogen produces a lot of carbon. Of course, it is possible to sequester it. Longer term, it's just going to be cheaper to make green hydrogen, period. Secondly, green hydrogen can be used in lieu of fossil fuels for so many applications. And, you know, I'll just rattle off a few. So, for example, dispatchable power plants. That's one of my favorites. there is a plan underway. The largest green hydrogen project under development in North America today is to support the conversion of a coal plant in central Utah to a hydrogen turbine that will initially combust a blend of 30% green hydrogen, 70% natural gas, over time increasing that green hydrogen percentage to 100%. What that means 
is we're reusing this incredible, valuable asset, retraining a skilled workforce that has been working on this coal plant and now hydrogen turbine for many generations. And instead of combusting natural gas over time, this plant will become a dispatchable, renewable electricity resource. So the green hydrogen will be made from wind and solar by electrolysis stored locally in an underground salt cavern right next to the plant and used for dispatch. So, you know, this power, they call it power to gas to power. I think of this as a great example of how we're electrifying our fuel supply with abundant, locally sourced renewable electricity. It sounds like the hydrogen is being used in some ways as a short, medium, or even a long-term energy storage component. In some ways, it's going to compete with batteries, but you can store a lot of this hydrogen, and it's there when you need it, and then you can run it in almost a conventional combustion plant. Exactly, yes, and it is a storage. That is a classic, super long-duration, even potentially seasonal storage solution. It complements well with batteries. And, you know, I just want to underscore it's not an either or. We kind of need all of the above. Batteries do well for intraday storage needs. Hydrogen is a great solution for that multi-day period where it's super cloudy or a period where we don't have enough wind or to move really abundant low-cost solar production in the summer to the wintertime. I'm just thinking, I got extra solar on my roof. Can I buy a little mini electrolysis plant and then, you know, just get some cheap water, although the water is still expensive, and then I could just electrolyze the water, turn it into hydrogen, put it in a tank, and then when I have those extended cloudy days, I can just run a fuel cell or a generator in my house. How far away is that kind of technology going to be? I know, I know I'm jumping ahead, but I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, we're talking about big plants, but, you know, it's kind exactly. of like back to the future. It's like a mini Mr. Hydrogen instead of a mini Mr. Fusion. Uh, you are a visionary, Barry. In fact, they're already demonstrating that in Japan. And so I think that vision is not too far away. And earlier you asked me, where can we make this hydrogen? And one of the reasons I love working on green hydrogen is just like solar, you can make it in large central power plants, like, for example, to supply green hydrogen fuel to this new hydrogen turbine in central Utah. Or you can move electrons to the power sector and make it locally if you plug into the grid. Or if you have rooftop solar, or you can make it locally with both grid electricity and rooftop solar. So you can deploy it and the production of hydrogen and it electrolytically in a very distributed footprint. And that vision you explained for your home, it's definitely in the future. Maybe not in the next five years, but it's coming and it's already being demonstrated in certain parts of the world. And remember the other pathways to make hydrogen, municipalities produce a lot of waste. Cities could be producing hydrogen from their organic waste or their plastics that they're not able to recycle. That's something that could happen very soon and produce large quantities of green hydrogen locally. All right. This is really, really cool. I'm becoming a much bigger fan of hydrogen. So let's talk a little bit about transportation applications. I remember 15 years ago, and I'm sure you remember these two, BMW had a BMW 7 Series at all of the solar shows showing how they could have a hydrogen luxury car ultimately moving it. And I think it had a combustion engine. It had a hydrogen tank and, you know, a V8 
hydrogen engine. But then Toyota came out with their Mirai, and I see those on the road. How's hydrogen going to compete with battery storage for transportation applications, either long-haul, big-equipment trucking, trains, or just, you know, look, people zipping around in cars? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people think about hydrogen versus the battery electric, right? Fuel cell electric versus battery electric. And I think that's the wrong construct. It's a fuel cell electric and battery electric. And there is room for both. (laughs) Each has its pros and cons and shines. I would say that where hydrogen has a particularly strong advantage versus battery electric is any use case that has a high utilization. In other words, that vehicle you know, be a, a car, a truck, a heavy-duty truck, a real car, <laughs> a ship is operating for a really long period of time, and it just doesn't have a lot of downtime to charge. So high utilization, it's very fast to refill a fuel cell vehicle. Right? It's kind of analogous to, you know, filling up at a gas station. Secondly, any transportation application that requires a payload where you're moving heavy goods, Hydrogen fuel is very lightweight relative to its energy density. And if you have that combo of high utilization and a need to haul around a lot of heavy equipment, hydrogen is a super awesome application because it's lightweight. In fact, I've seen studies that UCI did that if you had a hydrogen-fueled ship, you know, that's the ultimate in big payload, long distances, you would actually be able to carry more cargo than the comparable ship operating on diesel fuel. Wow. All right, that's cool. All right, Janice, this whole thing is fascinating. So from a climate change perspective, how is hydrogen going to help the short and medium-term transition that we've got to make to keep that temperature from rising too much? That's a great question. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, this little molecule has the ability to decarbonize sectors that we didn't even think were possible to decarbonize, like aviation, (laughs) for example. But how do we go from where we are today to decarbonizing flight, long-haul air travel? And I would say the past two decades, we've made great progress, especially in this country and especially in California. And I think kudos go to the visionary leaders who've been working on this, to decarbonizing and creating a network of fueling stations as an alternative for zero emission transport. And we have many, many more fueling stations going in now. From the GHD perspective, one application that we think has been overlooked is other applications that maybe at the margin aren't as high value, but have the potential to scale really big, really fast, and therefore drive down the cost of green hydrogen very quickly. And that's for example, power to gas to power, using it for really long duration storage and as an alternative to natural gas for combustion in existing gas turbines. Great way to reuse existing infrastructure. Repurposing a power plant represents a huge amount of hydrogen needed. For example, IPP, that plant I mentioned in central Utah, when it is operating with 100% green hydrogen, it will require 277 million kilograms of green hydrogen per year. Just that one plant is on track to drive down the cost of electrolysis quite a bit. 
what if we had three or four of those? Lower cost hydrogen is going to make road transport applications much more attractive. It'll make that fuel cell EV way cheaper to operate than its comparable gas vehicle, comparable diesel vehicle, and that will create momentum for further progress and sort of application penetration because now the economics are starting to line up. Once green hydrogen is scaled, we can now go after other applications too. And we're able to get that short-term those you know fix the duck curve use that existing infrastructure even some of the pipeline infrastructure so you mentioned that plant in utah 277 million kilograms of hydrogen a year so the question i have is how much solar and wind you know in terms of i don't know kilowatt hours a year or whatever how much solar and wind is needed for one of those plants or going forward to produce the green hydrogen that we need many gigawatts <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I think if there's a punchline, and especially for your listeners, I think one important takeaway of this podcast should be that green hydrogen is to wind and solar, it's blue ocean, right? It enables wind and solar to go after market share outside of the electric sector, right? Mm -hmm. We're using low-cost wind and solar to create a zero carbon fuel that can displace fossil fuels in many other sectors. And that's super exciting. And you know that solar was my first love. Yeah. So. Yep. All right. <laughs> so I have to go back and do some number crunching. We can't do it on the fly, but you know, a megawatt solar plant, which is tiny in perspective. I mean, a power light, you probably do that, you know, one of the very first ones, but how much green hydrogen per year can be produced from a one megawatt solar plant in California? I'll do the research on that later, but that's kind of my question. And that will answer how many, how many, 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 many gigawatts we'll need for all these new applications. Yeah. And, and remember, Barry, we're not just talking about applications here domestically. Countries are gearing up right now to be the low-cost producer of green hydrogen, and they're eyeing the global market because there are sort of energy-poor countries that don't have a lot of factor resources, domestic resources like Japan, Singapore. Hey, I'll check in Hawaii too. <laughs> they have to, they're net energy importers, and they're gearing up to import green hydrogen in very large volume. And my point with policymakers here in this country and in California is that we have a window of opportunity to get our act together because we should be part of that global economy too, especially California with all our ports. We should be exporting green hydrogen in very large quantities to these energy-hungry countries. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I was scratching my head about five, ten years ago when a lot of the countries you know, right around the equator, really sunny, whether it's Middle East, Sahara Desert, whatever, they're talking about putting in these huge solar plants, obviously they got lots of sun, and then running wires to Europe and to other places. I mean, that has got to be really, really expensive. Whereas if they were just to have green hydrogen plants in the middle of the desert somewhere where there's just nothing but sand and sun, that sounds like a much better solution to meet the needs of countries, as you mentioned, like Japan, that just don't have the area that they need to produce as much green hydrogen. So they'd be able to change their economies. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. One founding board member of GHC, Thierry Leperc, he's authored a book. It's called Hydrogen, the New Oil. And that's what's going to happen. You know, the next iteration our global energy economy will not be dominated by fossil fuels. It'll be 
driven by green hydrogen. And it'll be a completely different mix of players because given the many ways to produce it, <laughs> factor inputs. And what's interesting is I think certain dominant players in oil, like Saudi Arabia, already hit to this and have announced very large infrastructure projects with the intention of exporting green hydrogen globally out of Saudi Arabia. That makes total sense. So that's a good segue into the plants that are kind of getting started now, the pilot plants, the R&D. At a high level, tell us about how we're starting to see the manufacturing of green hydrogen scale up. Yeah, so there are, as I said, many ways to produce green hydrogen. I'll start with reformation of biogas. I mean, that technology is nothing new. It's very similar to reforming natural gas. The issue is you just have to get the biogas. And there's just, you know, there is a certain amount of it, but not enough, I would say, to completely, you know, put a significant dent in our fossil fuel use. Organic matter. We as humanity produce a lot of waste, whether it's ag waste, municipal solid waste. Those waste streams can be gasified, and there's different technologies to do that, to make green hydrogen. And that technology is also very mature, and ironically, it's at its roots in gasifying coal. It means that, you know, thinking about how can we like electricity out of coal more cleanly? So that gasification technology can be applied to making green hydrogen as well. And on the electrolysis side, you know, electrolysis, which is the the equipment that's used to split water, that's been around for a really long time too. I mean, they've been electrolysis equipment, there's various types, been commercially available for a very, very long time. What's different today is all of these manufacturers are scaling up big time. They're going from one shift to three shifts around the clock, And the other thing that's really different today than even, you know, five, seven years ago is the electricity that's needed to drive the electrolysis is super, super cheap. Wind and solar are now the lowest cost form of energy at the margin. So all those factors, everything is scaling up. And, you know, we can do, we can produce green hydrogen today from off-the-shelf technology to achieve the price points that we're aiming for in the longer term to, you know, beat gray hydrogen and enable green hydrogen to displace many fossil fuel applications. There is innovation that's happening now. We need to improve the efficiency. We need to reduce costs and scale up. We need to find ways to use our existing natural gas pipeline system to move the hydrogen. So there's a a DOE effort called Hydrand, looking at how we can increase the existing gas pipeline hydrogen content. I'm fascinated by these electrolysis systems. I'm I'm not a big fan of using biogas and taking the materials that are in landfills or wood chips or whatever, because carbon's already somewhat sequestered in there, not forever, but if you're actually going to turn it into green hydrogen, you've got to do something with completely sequestering that carbon dioxide or the carbon. But coming back to the electrolysis system, is anybody selling, you know, a mini demonstration system? I mean, I'm talking about something that I could buy on Amazon. Have you ever seen anything where I could just, you know, pour some water in, attach it to a 120 volt system, rectify it into DC, and then get some hydrogen bubbling out? Have you seen anything like that? Not commercially, but I haven't been tracking the super small applications, so I probably wouldn't be the person to ask. 
that those systems, I'm sure you can get one if you look hard enough. And they are, I'm certain they're demonstrating that in Japan at the residential level. So if you find one, let me know. Well, my high school, my high school chemistry teacher showed us this, you know, he had some kind of electro, I forgot what the electrodes were. He put connected up to a power source and then he was bubbling the hydrogen and the oxygen into a couple of beakers. And then he showed us how it burned a little flash as the hydrogen side gas went off. So I'm just very curious because that's something that's compelling to a lot of the people in Silicon Valley also, just to show how you can use your excess solar to produce a completely green fuel like hydrogen. We all know it's going to scale up. So that's pretty cool. All right. The challenge with all of this technology demonstration projects scale up is it's really expensive. And it's really long-term. So what kind of government support and incentives are being considered for green hydrogen? Yeah, and this chicken and egg problem is one that we think about a lot, right? That we know we can make green hydrogen, but it's too expensive today. And it's expensive because it hasn't scaled. And we don't have the right infrastructure to support, you know, (laughs) it's a do-loop. Our solution for breaking through this is, first of all, you need to have the appropriate underlying legal and regulatory framework to even think, you know, define hydrogen, how it's used, and make sure it's part of our planning process. But the other thing that needs to happen is we need to design this ecosystem at scale, starting with large off-takers in strategically targeted places. Because by centralizing the focus in a particular region or location, we can identify really large-scale demand and be able to afford the infrastructure to deliver the molecules at a very low delivered price point. Things that government can do to help support this, one, my favorite, pipeline injection. A number of utilities and states are looking at this. That's going to be probably the lowest near-term, lowest cost near-term way of moving the molecule. It's being investigated all around the world. And by the way, Hawaii already has a 12% hydrogen percentage on the island of Oahu. And for perspective, if we had a 5% injection target here in California of green hydrogen, that would equate to removing something like 360,000 cars off the road every year because we would have decarbonized that percentage of the gas pipeline. So basically, you're injecting hydrogen into the existing natural gas pipeline, kind of like the way we're putting alcohol into gasoline right now. It's using the same infrastructure, same, idea. same engines. Okay. Same idea. Yeah. Another thing that we need to do collectively is so we can utilize existing gas. And say, what about the electric infrastructure? There are times of the day where we have excess capacity on a transmission and distribution system. Why aren't we using it? Making hydrogen, green hydrogen, hydrolytically, <laughs> would be a great way to use that infrastructure, maybe to connect up a local electrolysis manufacturing with nighttime wind power somewhere from the Northwest. And we could be making uh, hydrogen locally. And what do we need to do that? We, we need the right rate design. We need to have the right rate design that would incentivize utilization of our existing electric infrastructure. And with better utilization, we just might make rates cheaper for everybody. 
So speaking of infrastructure, are there any carve-outs that you're aware of or any projects that are part of Biden's infrastructure plan that would support green hydrogen? You know, I it's on my list of things to do to read that plan, and I haven't read it in detail, so I, a short answer is I don't know. There are a number of projects that have been announced and are under development right now here in North America. Many projects that have been announced all over the world, ranging from super small, like the residential electrolysis application in Japan, to super large, multi-gigawatt scale, multi-sectoral applications. The largest in North America is the conversion of Intermountain Power Products, Power Project, Next Era as the electrolyzer project in Florida, in Okeechobee, Florida, that's using excess solar to produce green hydrogen for, again, it's a similar application for combustion in a natural gas power plant. In Douglas, Washington, a public utility there has a smaller five megawatt electrolysis project, primarily for refueling stations. And there's actually an independent power plant in Ohio, it's like almost 500 megawatts, that wants to use 15% hydrogen blend and repurpose a plant there. So there's a lot of big projects going on. And there's demonstration scale projects like here in California. SoCal Gas Gas has announced some pretty innovative pilots, even at the residential level. So there's a lot happening. Great. That's pretty cool. Tell us more about the Green Hydrogen Coalition that you're spearheading. Sure. So the first thing I wanted to say is that the GHC is an educational mission-driven nonprofit. So we're a 501c3. And the mission of the GHC and how we're different from every other hydrogen NGO or association out there is we are laser-focused on accelerating production and use of green hydrogen at scale to achieve multi-sectoral decarbonization. So we really prioritize our work to realize real projects in the ground as quickly as possible. And when I say at scale, it's not just limited to a big project <laughs> somewhere in central Utah. We think of scale as large, you know, gigawatt scale, but that could be fulfilled by distributed applications too. This whole thing's very, very exciting. And you know, we're kind of in an, a significant new era where we've gotten away from an administration that was fossil fuels only, green things are just kind of bad on a prima facie basis. But, you know, I can see these things really taking off. And it's also very heartening to see that there's going to be really great applications that are going to soak up the abundance of solar power that we've got. Terrific having you on the show today. How can people get in touch with you? Well, I would say visit us online. It's dh coalition.org. As a C3, we're solely supported by the charitable donations of our funders. We have a number of activities and initiatives underway. You can check it out on our website and really open call for listeners to reach out, get involved. This is, I have to say, the most exciting thing I've ever worked on professionally. And I see things happening really fast, even faster than how storage came together 10 years ago. 
Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. All right, well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. And thanks, Janice, for joining us. I love the discussion that we had. i got to go buy one of these little mini hydrogen test generators. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website. It's cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.